Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in community organising. We partner with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across the globe to develop community organising strategies and train leaders to build power from within their community. And in 2022, Dunstreet will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunstreet, hit us up at dunstreet.com. Social Democratic is also brought to you by Morris Blackburn. Morris Blackburn's dust diseases team have accumulated more than 20 years of experience in asbestos litigation and pride themselves on ensuring that their clients not only receive the best compensation results, but that they are supported during their stressful and traumatic time. And uh, Morris Blackburn are looking for a passionate full-time associate to join their dust diseases team in their Brisbane office. To apply, go to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast out every Friday that dives into the progressive campaign issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And my apologies um, for missing out on it. I know I say (laughs) that our... Uh, podcast comes out every Friday. We miss an episode uh, just Friday, just gone. I've literally just um, come back from uh, a trip overseas and would you believe it, on the flight back, I got COVID. So last week I was uh, a bit crook and feel a bit sorry for myself. So unfortunately I had to sit on the couch for a week um, just basically watching sport. It was pretty painful. Um, but our, my uh, my voice wasn't up for doing an episode, so we sort of had to push it back. Uh, but anyway, what we're going to do to make up for it is we're going to give you two episodes uh, this week. Uh, one which we're putting out on uh, Wednesday. We're recording this on Tuesday. Uh, and then we'll have another one uh, uh, this Friday. Today's episode is with uh, Amit Singh, who we've had on the show before. We had him on way, way back in uh, like the early stages of the pandemic. Like I'm thinking April, May 2020 to talk about uh, the economic impact of the pandemic would have and I thought let's get Amit back on again today to talk about what has happened uh, and what the recovery looks like or should look like for both um, the Australian economy and also the the global economy. So we've got uh, Amit Singh who's a former advisor, economic advisor to the Wright and Gillard governments and now is a um, a managing director at Accenture to come talk to us about that. So looking forward to today's conversation with Amit. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher and if you like the show be sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts um, and uh, if and on Spotify, when you're done listening to today's episode, leave us a review on uh, Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. And for all the updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. Okay, we're taping this one on a Tuesday afternoon in uh, on a warm summer's afternoon in uh, downtown Melbourne, and I'm uh, joined on the line by the former economic advisor to both the Rudd and Gillard governments, and now a managing director at Accenture, um, returning for his second time on the show. Amit Singh, welcome back to Socially Democratic. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, now, the last time you were on the show, we were in the, I guess I would call it the embryonic days of the COVID pandemic, um, which was back in, I have to go check, it was actually April 2020, which now feels like a decade ago. Um, and you were talking about the, the I guess, the, the impact, the economic impact of global pandemic was going to have on both the Australian and the economic, or sorry, the global uh, economy. I actually went back and listened to the episode 
um, which was interesting because now it just feels like we've been through so much since we talked about um, um, the, the, what, what, what possibly could transpire. So I wanted to get you back on the show now just to talk a bit about where we've been and where we're going. And one of the things that was interesting about what you did talk about on the show was the complexity of addressing such an economic crisis. And you broke up the response into three distinct phases. The first phase being the response to the crisis, the second one being the recovery from the crisis, and then the third one being the repositioning of our economy out of that crisis. So what I want to do today with our podcast is use that framework to analyse and reflect where we are now two years down the track, starting with the first phase, which is the response to the crisis. Um, looking back on where we've been, how did you? Th- how has the economy fared um, with how the government responded to the crisis? What worked uh, and what didn't when we think about the Australian economy? Yeah, so I think um, we, we saw in... You know, in terms of the government's response, the most extraordinary set of policy settings that we've ever seen um, in dealing with the impact on the economy. You know, as jobs were lost, the government introduced like unprecedented um, policy supports. This was federal governments and state governments. You know, like that was appropriate in this crisis phase. Um, and you know, I mean, and as we move into newer phases, you know, I mean the question, the appropriateness, but just to kind of put it in some context, right? Like we saw like fiscal policy was like um, the federal government spent in during this period, spent 7% of GDP, right? Now, if you remember like Whitlam spent, like Whitlam's increased spending by 5.5%, you know what I mean? That egregious spender, you know what I mean? Like Fraser did 3.2%, you know what I mean? Keating during the during the 90s recession, uh, sorry, during the early 80s recession, um, spent 3.3%, yeah? Um, from the time that I was in government, you know, when I worked um, for um, for Kevin Rudd, um, you know, Kevin Rudd's Kevin Rudd's stimulus, which which you know, I mean, many people lambasted as being over, was two point eight percent. Like that is like 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 let's just put this in context. Like the amount of money that was thrown into the economy during this period of time was absolutely unprecedented. If you asked me two years ago what you know to hazard a guess, there's no way I would have guessed this. Right. So we have to, you know, I mean, when you throw that much money into the economy, it will have an effect, right? We cannot, like, you cannot, um, you cannot do that much and say that it didn't have, have an effect. And at the same time, we had the lowest ever interest rates, right? Like we had, you know, I mean, we basically had the lowest ever interest rates, which then fueled a whole range of other activity that helped the economy along the way, right? And at the same time, there were also the RBA, um, engaged in essentially a series of different um, money market operations that basically increased massive liquidity um, into the um, into the economy as well. So there's a whole range of different like you know, when I say it was the most extraordinary set of policy settings, it literally was the most extraordinary set of policy settings. And by and large, you know, at a kind of macro level, we did pretty well. You know what I mean, um, but they are, um, but there were there were um, there were you know choices along the way that we you know, I mean on reflection could have done better. And I think, and I hope that when we're through this crisis, we actually take some time to reflect on those ones. I mean, should we have done better in the way in which we thought about the support for workers through JobKeeper and the transition for that? 
yes, maybe we should think. I mean, we should, we should think about the way in which we support that as a traditional tool of economic policy. Should we think a bit more carefully about the way in which we saw? I mean, like, like was that appropriately targeted? Was there waste in the program? I mean, we should think about that. I mean, should we think about um, should we think about the support that was withdrawn in particular from the job seeker element of that, or the I mean, or or or, or the trans transferees or allowees in that? I mean, um, and and their their kind of access. Yes, we should think so. The, the, there are definitely things that, that we could have done that, that was better, but I think we need to start from this understanding that if you throw that much money into the economy, if you get that much support from monetary policy, it's going to have an effect, right? And by and large, Australia did okay at a macro level. I mean, we can, we'll, we'll come you know, um, uh, later in this thing. I'm, I, I'm happy to sort of talk about some of the things underneath that you know, probably need things, but that's kind of the upshot of where we're at. And so we come into this in a reasonably good position you know, because of that macro level thing. And also, I think let's not forget the role that the states played. Yeah, but let's not forget the role. Like, I think there's, it's become popular to kind of criticize the states, but actually the state's response in terms of managing the crisis and quarantining the crisis actually helped de-risk our response as well. And so um, all those things taken together meant that we did okay. In, in, the, in the response phase, we did generally okay. Unpack that point, actually. It's um, not one of the questions I've got here, but it's I, one I did consider when I was drafting these questions was what level of um what, what was the difference uh or what or where did this where did the states play a critical role in protecting the australian economy as to, opposed to the policy settings of the of the of the federal government because there were you know you it's hard to keep track but i don't know what happened in other states but certainly here in victoria there was a lot of economic announcements constantly certainly through that big long lockdown in 2020 2020 or 2021 uh, day after day, the Victorian state government was always making a lot of announcements about well, here's another announcement we're going to do to um, to protect small business. Here's another announcement we're going to do to protect hospitality workers. Here's another announcement we're going to do to protect uh, workers in yeah. the healthcare industry. Talk us through the, the differences between the packages that were being done at a state and a federal level and how that helped uh, respond to the crisis. Yeah, so um, it's it's clear, it's in the Victorian budget papers, we did a piece of analysis to show that the business support payments that the Victorian state government in particular did, I mean, did have an effect of supporting small businesses in that period of time. I mean, it's very clear that um, the support that the state governments offered um, covered it. It's also been clear that the state governments have been faster to move than the federal government in many respects. I mean, so the immediate kind of injection of support that you know, small businesses needed was, you know, I mean, that bridge was 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 played. You know, that role was played by state governments while the bigger kind of wave came from came, came from the federal government in time. I mean, so so I think I think we should we should um, you know another really great example of that was. Um, the original payments for the original payments to keep workers at home so that they could care for their care for their loved ones or recover themselves. You know, I mean, Victoria led the way and made that payment before the federal government made that payment. And so, you know, in many ways, the states the states moved first, and then that then allowed. You know, it was either complemented by the federal government or um, it was replaced by the federal government. So I think I think the role the states played in the first instance was as the kind of first mover was really important, right? I think the other the other element of the other element of thinking about you know the role that the states played was also in um, tailoring the approaches for their kind of um, for their particular um, economies, right? Um, and I think you know I think that 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 was a challenging task because. In some respects, one of the things that I hope we do when we have a 
comprehensive kind of review of our responses is the level of coordination that took place during this period of time, right? And, you know, could there have been more coordination? Could there be more leadership from the federal government? I think everybody knows that that, you know, I mean, um, that was the case, but I think that they, but I think the ability of state governments to tailor responses for their particular economies was particularly, or was important. And I think one of the, one of the unfortunate things about the policy analysis around that period of time was the fact that we were equivocating different sectors depending on where they were um, in different parts of the economy. So I think it's a perfectly reasonable approach for Victoria to have a different approach to construction than, say, South Australia. You know what I mean, And those were the types of things that states could do that the federal government wasn't able to do. The federal government took an isolationist approach to dealing with the actual spread of the virus by essentially closing ourselves off from the rest of the world. Uh, was there a need, you know, we live in a global economy today. Was there a need for the government to protect the Australian economy from offshore uh, impacts? Um, and did they, and what did they do a good job of that? What, you know, did they protect the Australian economy from what the pandemic could have, uh, uh, the, the, the crisis could have had on the Australian economy from, from external issues like, uh, in China or the United States or Europe? Yeah, look, um, I think I think it's like it's the easiest lever we've got. So if you don't use it, you know, it sort of feels like it's easy. But the thing I worry about on the on thinking about this kind of concept of like closing ourselves off is that may be something that you use in a response phase, but you actually have to plan for a world in which that's not going to that is not the long term settings, right? And what I what I kind of worry about is that that has almost ended up being baked into what people assume is kind of part of the long-term settings. You know, the Prime Minister talks a lot about how, you know, every time, every time the unemployment figures come out, you know, we, we have this huge thing about how he's kept unemployment low. It's like, well, that's a function of the fact that we've got closed, essentially closed borders, right? You know, and so um, uh, I, I think, I think, I think as an immediate response factor that obviously had an impact and clearly it was like a lever that many other countries would have used if, it, if they could. But the question is, to me, the question isn't whether or not that was the most successful thing. It's the question is, what do you do after that point? Right. And I think what is really interesting is that um, the effect of the effect of um, you know, uh, you're saying it feels like a decade ago. It feels like three pandemics ago. It feels like we had the COVID pandemic, the Delta pandemic, and the Omicron pandemic. You know, I mean, like, you know, everybody was worried about the once in a hundred year pandemic, and I was like, I thought we had three of those in like three, two years, right? But um, the I think once once that sort of shifts, once that focus shifts, we'll go back to like the same the same conversations about things that matter for for the economy, right? Like how do we think about, and, and new issues will emerge, right? Like how do we think about cost of living and inflation? How do we think about the skills shortages that exist in the economy? How do we think about rising interest rates? And for that, you can't think that the nature of our economy is a function of closed borders, right? Like the Australian economy functions on the fact that it has open borders and some states, and in particular, we're both talking to each other from Melbourne, rely on open borders for 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 yeah, I mean for the strength and the you know, I mean the success of our economies, so I think I think yeah we will, I think that was an immediate response, but we need to start planning for a world in which that is not the long term setting. And I, as I asked that question as well, I felt like a bit of a dickhead because one, I'm not a 
economic politics I, by, I know you know, by, I, by any yeah. stretch of imagination. But as I'm asking, I'm going, do we want to close the economy off to the rest of the world? Like, I mean, <laughs> I, I think I was thinking it through the lens of maybe the 2007 GFC where we didn't want to experience the, you know, the, the crisis that was happening in the United States. So there is this sort of fortress Australia kind of attitude, right? And maybe I'm playing that out again. But at the same time, you know, it's, you know I've, I've heard a lot of economists talk about, for example, the Victorian economy is so reliant on migration <laughs> and people coming to our economy. It needs to take in a certain amount of people per week for it in order to continue to grow. What kind of impact has that had on the Victorian economy where there's just not been a lot of people being able to move to Australia either from other parts of the country or from outside of, uh, so from, uh, from migration from outside Australia as well? I mean, has that had a detrimental impact on the Victorian economy, for example? Yeah, so this is this is this is the this is the consequence of the effect of the two things, right? So, sorry, this is the con- the the implication or the effect of you know closed borders has no doubt had an impact on the Victorian economy. If you think about the Victorian economy and where its biggest earners are, its biggest earners are international education, tourism, um, tourism, the hospitality sector. You know, like the whole idea of. Melbourne's livability is a function of the fact that it is a cosmopolitan city that has, you know, um, that embraces different cultures and different, um, uh, different aspects of life. You know? And so I think, I think it is no doubt had an impact on on the Victorian economy, right? Um, you know, the way in which we think about um, major events and other things have been disrupted by that, right? But I think what, but but as I was saying earlier, I think the combination of closed borders and the amount of support that the economy has been giving has been has received mm. have kind of now created some pressures in the economy that we should be worried about right we should be worried about um, unempl- unemployment is low and that's a great thing we should never you know i mean we should always want low unemployment but it is lower than it's than, but it is lower than it has been at any point since the mining boom right um, job vacancies are nearly twice as high as they were before the pandemic they're actually job vacancies are at, actually at the highest level they've ever really been you know i mean house prices are Try and buy a house in Melbourne or Sydney. You can't, right? Like, you know, house prices are going up. Retail trade has basically exploded. Last year, we had the single greatest increase in our wealth in history, right? I mean, like, you know, so all those things are a function of the fact that the economy isn't operating in the way in which it should. I mean, um, we might think that this is the new normal, right? But this is not the normal we should aspire to. The normal we should aspire to is the one in which a third of Australians leave the country every year. That's what we did in the year before the pandemic. Every year, 8 million Australians leave the country, right? Um, it probably means most of them are going to Bali, but yeah, I mean, the point is we have, that, that number is very high for a country that, ha- that has a, you know, I mean, that has a ocean border. So sorry, that, that's basically surrounded by an ocean. Right. Um, we don't, um, you know, that that outwardness, that outwardness of Australians everywhere. You know, I mean, we should want to, we should want that back. You know, I mean, and and that is actually really important for our, for the growth of our economy, the way in which we think about, you know, I mean, the way in which we think about the future, the way in which we embrace, um, embrace change, and are more resilient to that change. So yeah. Um, but I think you, you take the combination of the closed border plus all of these other pressures in the economy, and you begin to start to worry whether or not it has the effect. Um, whether or not we should be we should be concerned about what the next twelve months and and beyond looks like. Well, let's turn to that second phase then, the recovery. Um, where do you? I mean, where do, where are we in this sort of recovery? Like, I mean, are we at the start of the recovery? Are we at the midpoint? It's sort of like, is there going to be a long tail? Is the you know is the end in sight? It just sort of feels weird to sort of talk about a recovery when we we've just come through the experience of 
the Omicron outbreak. Therefore, that requires a policy treatment that's about um, protecting. That's right. You know, um, but yet here we're talking about we need to focus on the recovery as well. Talk us through where, where do you think we, we are at this point in terms of the recovery uh, for the Australian economy? Yeah, so I think I think I think um, I think it's a it, it, it's a very interesting I think it's a very interesting period because um, if we if we think about the if we think about the recovery as like the three distinct phases when we talked about them way back when were always overlapping phases, right? So we we are nat naturally going to have a response and a recovery at you know, I mean, at similar times, and we may also go backwards, right? So a lot of my comments are premised on the fact that I think once the Omicron pressures play out, these other pressures will come through. It doesn't, you know, I mean, it assumes in some senses that there isn't some other virulent strain that's kind of floating around there and that we have to deal with it. But I think, I think where we are is we're at the point in the kind of recovery where we need to start thinking about those emergency responses and whether those emergency responses need to be wound back to more normal conditions, right? Or more, or conditions that then give us the capacity to deal with the next crisis. Because at the moment, we've basically shot all of our, we've essentially shot all of our, um, all of our artillery, right? And so now's the time to basically try and wind it back. Um, I think, you know, in a way, in a way, if you think about the, the economy or the kind of management of the economy, it's a bit like it's a bit like um, running a racehorse on the first Tuesday in November, right? Um, you, if you're an owner of a, if you're a, an owner of a, uh, of a racehorse that's basically about to start the Melbourne Cup, you essentially are worried about a range of things. But one of the things you're worried about is that you go too hard too early, and you basically have nothing left when you get into the home straight, right? And one of the challenges that we've got is we have an we have an economy that's going pretty well and pretty fast without needing without needing the jockey to make any kind of interventions right and at the moment the jockey is pushing the horse pretty hard and that horse was already going pretty fast and so we should ask ourselves you know, i mean when is the point at which we want to make that shift when is the point at which we want to settle into the middle of the pack to set ourselves up for the run run home right and we aren't we are not setting ourselves for the run home we're almost getting ahead of, ahead of ourselves and leading the pack and basically not putting us in a good position. Um, I'll come back in a moment and ask you questions about what are the implications of having a, a gassed economy or one that's running a little bit too hot. But before we do that, I just want to get a sense from you about, did we see a difference in economies that locked down as opposed to those economies that stayed open? Because there was obviously a lot of criticism, particularly directed at the Victorian state Labor government about constantly going to lockdowns to protect the health sector and, and, and our citizens. But was there, a, was there a difference between those economies that did go into lockdown as opposed to those economies that remained open? Yeah, there was absolutely a difference. There was absolutely a difference. And I think, and I think um, uh, this, this, this idea that somehow the health response and the economic response are distinct things. Like if you want good economics, it's good health policy and good health policy is good economics, right? You know, yes, there's things at the margin people could have done better, but like fundamentally that, that remains the case. The economies that didn't, didn't take any kind of serious interventions around this slowed considerably right like we did not see we did not see you know, i mean that they perhaps did not have the precipitous falls um that many economies did but the ones that did recovered reasonably quickly australia is a case in point right if you take the overall macro approach that took place in australia and you can take victoria as a as, as an example the bounce backs that, that came back the, the bounce back in the economies were real, right? You know I mean, um, you know, that, that happened in the case of the Victorian economy. I was looking at Melbourne mobility data um, uh, earlier today, and it's really interesting because you can kind of track the way in which when there were 
um, when the, when when the lockdowns happened, people basically you know activity effectively slowed down. When when the lockdowns disappeared, activity came back, and it was it didn't take it didn't take an eternity for that to come back. It wasn't like there was this lost capacity in the economy. And so I think I think there absolutely was a difference. But I think the thing you've got to think about is we now have three you know two two years of data on this, right? And what's really interesting about it is that the places that don't take action have a steady you have you know, I mean have a steady decline and end up basically in a kind of worse position than the ones that don't. The best example of that is you look at the response from the UK economy and the response from the Australian or the New Zealand economy. And in the UK, there was a small dip and then it looked like they were basically petering along. I mean, they eventually went into lockdown, whereas Australia had a big dip, but came back at a stronger position than where they started. I mean, and so that I think is, that I think has been really clear. And one of the things I think that was also fed the kind of popular narrative is this idea that the countries that lock down are somehow, the countries that lock down are somehow politically unpopular, right? Yeah. Antonio Costa was not expected to win his election, right? Like Antonio Costa, the Portuguese prime minister, was re-elected for the first time in, I think it was like, um, I'll get it wrong, but for the first time in some decades with a majority, right? Um, with a majority. Um, I love Antonio Costa because he's also um, part Indian, you know what I mean? Um, but, um, um, and Portugal ran a reason, Portugal ran a, policy that was not too dissimilar to Victoria, right? So that like the idea that somehow, you know, I mean, these things are economically bad or politically bad is just some kind of other, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, common commentary rather than actual, you know, I mean, actual evidence, right? And I think, I think what we're seeing is there was absolutely a difference in the economic status, there's absolutely a difference in the health outcomes, and there's absolutely a difference in the political outcomes as well. One of the things just on this, the ones that stayed open, the ones that stayed closed, I think what is interesting though, is it also mattered what you did when you did, um, when you either stayed open or whether, when you closed or when you took a re restrictive kind of action and made, made the most of your time. And I think this is where the three phases matter a lot. You can nail the response, but if you haven't thought enough about the recovery, then it becomes really difficult, right? You'd argue that New Zealand was more, probably pretty close to the best country on the response, right? It had a lot of features that allowed it to be, but it is having a real, you know, I mean, doozy of a time on on think on the shift to the recovery. So a lot of places are going to get caught up in this shift from response to recovery. You know what I mean, but it's really how do you use the time that you bought in one, each of these phases to to think about the next. It's an interesting point you say there, Amit, because you know the economic recovery is so interlinked with the health response. And one of the things that I'm, and one of the things I've read during the week, a lot of economists are attaching the economic recovery to citizens getting the booster shots. Uh, and to avoid that cycle of uh, going back into lockdowns that we've sort of experienced over the last uh, two years, not just here in Victoria, but obviously in New South Wales as well. And what I'm finding interesting from a public leadership standpoint is why the Morrison government, and in particular why Scott Morrison, isn't being more forthright in his communications about the need for the public to get their third shot and to get their booster. And he's once again, he's leaving it up to state governments to make that call. Uh, I don't understand why he's not doing that because all the economists are saying if people can get their boosters, we're far more protected against any other variants that might uh, outbreak in our community. Therefore, you're, you're protecting the economy as best you possibly can. Whereas Scott Morrison is just completely missing on that and not coming out there and saying, hey, everyone, we did so well in getting your first shot. We did so well in getting your second shot. Like, and it is remarkable when you think about it. Compared extraordinary. To, uh, compared to Absolutely other, other extraordinary. Western yeah. democracies. 
um, why he's not going out there now and saying, hey, that's great, but now you've got to go get your booster as well. Yeah, well, like uh, I don't know why he's not saying it when, you know, Dominic Perrottet says it every day. You know I mean, um, yeah. So I think I think um, I think the um, uh, I, I I I'm not a public health expert. I'm not going to pretend to be a public health expert. But what I do know is that the aspiration that our economy has, you know, I mean, needs to pull this lever to protect the health system, which we need to, which we absolutely need to do. And the economic case for that is, is clear, right? Um, should motivate us to basically think about every possible tool that we can to avoid that particular lever, right? You know I mean, and, um, and I don't think anybody, you know, I mean, anybody wants to see that. And I also think that we should th think that we should have enough faith in people, right? I talked about the mobility data, right? Even if we don't have lockdowns, people basically do their own lockdowns, right? If you look at literally Melbourne, mo you know, mobility in Melbourne city without, you know, effectively during this kind of recent, recent sort of um, recent period fell markedly, right? Now this wasn't a particular thing because Victorians are weird or in the Massachusetts or Australia or whatever it is, right? The same thing happened in New York city, yeah. right? Um, whether or not you choose to do lockdowns or not, people's behavior and activity, we live in a market economy is a function of it, right? So we should be encouraging people to do boosters. We should be encouraging people to do anything that they possibly can to prevent to prevent the spread or prevent, uh, well, sorry, to prevent essentially anything that requires governments to take lockdowns, right? So, you know, um, I think I think the um, the idea that um, the idea that um, we want to have an economic cycle where the lever of lockdowns is something that's that 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 can be deployed is something we should aspire as much as we can to avoid. Picking up on that point you said before about unemployment, I just want to get your your thoughts on the state of the labour market at the beginning of 2022. Unemployment, as you said before, is incredibly low. I mean, that's a good thing, but in terms of the remarks you were saying before about the economy potentially being overheated, like what what's the downside to to something like that um, that we're seeing here in terms of unemployment rate? Yeah, so um, uh, it's it's worth sort of unpacking a little bit. Um, uh, unpacking the kind of unemployment story a little um, a little more clearly, right? Yeah, they, um, the labour market is already pretty 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 tight, right? Um, and unemployment is at its lowest levels um, since the mining boom, and we should be very happy. You know, we we should be thrilled about that outcome, right? You know I mean, and um, and people have an employment, right? Which is the other way to kind of think about the unemployment story is already above pandemic levels. There are more Australians in work than they um, than there were before the, before the pandemic, right? But the thing to think about is that what what is then a function of of, of those different factors, right? You know I mean, so the outlook for the labour market is actually reasonably strong, right? You know, vacancies are at an all-time high. They nearly double the pre-pandemic level. So there's kind of a pretty decent decent amount of data that basically shows that there's little slack in the in the labour market, right? And sorry, that that that, that, uh, that there's you know a little slack in the labour market, and maybe even the rate of unemployment could go a bit lower. There's also different bits of data that show that there's some the skills mismatches that exist in the economy are slowly being being ironed out. You know I mean? um, and so, so basically our labor market is performing reasonably well, except in some particular pockets where this just isn't enough, where there just isn't enough, um, um, there just isn't enough um, uh, skills for a particular kind of task, or there just isn't enough workers to do certain roles, you know, hospitality, agriculture, you know, those, those types of industries, right? So, so, so by and large, the kind of the outlook of the the outlook of the labour market is reasonably reasonably positive. Now, I haven't 
account for regional factors and regional factors are going to, you know, it's going to be different in Melbourne than in Sydney. It's going to be different in Western Sydney than it is in regional Victoria, et cetera, et cetera. But by and large at a macro level, that's right. And retail, so, so you take, take employment as that. Then you take basically retail spending is already well above the trend, right? So all of this money in the economy has had an effect, right? Yeah, so we're seeing more people being able to spend. And as, as I said before, we had this, um, as I said before, um, we had this, um, um, we, we, had, we had basically the single biggest increase in our kind of overall wealth because we were at home and we weren't spending in the way in which we'd typically be spending. So now we've got all that pent up demand and we are actually using it, right? And so we then have to worry, start to worry about inflation, right? And that I think is the thing that, um, has emerged in other countries, and we can talk about that um, in a little bit. But I think in the context of Australia, we have to think about inflation both from a kind of cost push, so supply chain, you know, freight costs, that kind of, um, you know, those sorts of factors, and also this is from like a demand pull kind of um, aspect, which is what, what I just mentioned about cashed up consumers, right? And I think one of the challenges is that we have probably been under indexing on the inflation issue for, for, for a while. I mean, um, the RBA has kind of probably been uh, a little bit, um, a little. I mean, has has probably been wrong. Yeah, it has probably been wrong on the low side for for a while. I mean, I think I think that's kind of had an effect on the way in which we think about the equity markets. You know, and you know, I mean, and looking forward, expectations are. You know, I mean, um, are increasing. You know, like we think about. Um, 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 if we think about sort of um, consumer inflation expectations, they're not great predictors of the overall level of inflation, but they're good at picking up turning points. And this is why I think everybody got very excited about the cost of bread and the cost of milk mm. discussion. And it wasn't the fact of the cost of bread or the cost of milk discussion that was the interesting point. It was the point that it was a national story and it had been, and it was a national story for a few days, right? And so there's something interesting in that, right? And, um, and so we have to think about this kind of idea about consumer expectations, about rising inflation. In the US, the single biggest issue that US voters are worried about is inflation. I'm sh pretty sure you know, if you ask them to unpack it, it'd be pretty, um, you'd have to worry about it. But inflation in the US is the highest it's been in 40 years, right? In the UK and Canada, inflation is rising at the fastest rate in 30 years, right? Like we're well, part of the issue on the Freedom Convoy in, the, in Canada is that it's gained some, you know, I, I still think it's fundamentally still not, you know, I mean, hasn't reached kind of national popularity, but the reason it's had even just a small murmur of like attention is because of this kind of challenge around inflation. In the UK, um, which, you know, I mean, does the cost of living debate, you know, in Australia, but on, you know, I mean, you know, to, to a whole new extent, right? Where Boris Johnson hasn't been at the front of the paper, it's been concerns about the costs of, basic goods, right? There's a million Britons that don't eat every day and they cite the single reason for that is cost of living pressures, right? Um, and so we have to kind of think about, think about these particular things. And just because it's sort of reaching five to, you know, like, like it, just because it's reaching five to 10% in other countries, right? While that's important, it doesn't necessarily mean it will reach those levels in Australia, but global inflation does affect Australia within two channels, right? One channel is that high inflation in other countries will drive interest rates up. Um, and we already know that house prices are up. So high interest rates is going to be, is going to create a new level of pressure. You know, a lot of people have bought those houses on the basis where they think that the forward guide, the so-called forward guidance or open mouth 
um, open mouth policies, you know, which sounds a bit awkward, but that's actually what they call them, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, that the Reserve Bank has been engaged in is, you know, I mean, is going to hold true, but, yeah. you know, you, you really have to worry about that. Yeah, anyway, but, yeah, I mean, so, so interest rates will go up, but then also as Australia's relative interest rate falls, our currency falls and it, because investors move, um, move into higher yield jurisdictions and a lower currency means that imported goods are more expensive in Australian dollars. It means that your recent trip would have been much more expensive, right? And um, in this way, we start to import high inflation, both through the currency effect and also through the tradable effect. So, um, you know, so you asked me a question about unemployment and I finished by talking about inflation. It's because I think unemployment is a challenge and remains a challenge and within specific aspects of the labor market. But I think the thing that economic policymakers should be worried about, the thing that's front of our faces that we really need to be thinking um, strongly about is inflation, right? Um, so, yeah. With, with that strong demand for uh, workers in sectors like hospitality, agriculture, retail, uh, transport. Will we see the market meet that demand with higher wages? I know that I've read a couple of um, pieces during the week talking about the. There's a view now that both in the private sector and in the public sector, companies are more open to negotiate higher wages. Uh, therefore, we're going to start to see an increase in wages. That would I would assume would also put pressure on inflation as well. But you know, yeah. and if, if you know, one of the things that certainly Labor has been uh, screaming about for the better part of, you know, a decade is the gap between the cost of living and and wages. And we all, Australian workers are long overdue seeing their wages start to climb a bit. But now you're yep. talking about the concern <laughs> that we have about inflation. You can you can actually just now see, you know, the front page of the Herald, of the, uh, the Australian and the Fin Review now saying, no, no, we need to put a dampener on wages because we don't want to stoke inflation but you know where are we on this like what, what would be the response from labor do you think or a social democratic party in yeah. wanting to argue for higher wages but also not wanting to see inflation go through the roof yeah so i think i think i think um i think that it's convenient to think about wages as being the the what wages are a function of you know, i mean inflation but they're only uh, a component of them right you know i mean and um and i think i think the way to kind of think about it is it's two side it's one ledger right but you, it's one ledger where you've got at one side you've essentially what you had for the longest period of time is no growth in wages no growth in wages but still pressures on the kind of cost of living side and this is where the thing where the overall inflation read hasn't actually shown the pressures that you know i mean most working families feel on the kind of cost of living side but now what we've got is this kind of combination of two factors where wages aren't increasing but cost of living pressures are going up right so it's made this problem that labor has been talking about even worse now i i think i think the the challenge i think on wages is um, it's about a fundamental rebalancing of the economy and thinking of, you know, there's two ways to think about uh, wages. There's one, which is the short-term issue around market wages to get people in the right roles where you need them. And this is where this kind of discussion around hospitality, agriculture, retail, and transport kind of comes in. We saw that a little bit in the mining boom and how that kind of responded where, you know, people were earning you know, extraordinary extraordinary wages for certain things because they just needed to get done. You know what I mean, And that those are kind of short-term market kind of challenges. There's a longer term structural issue on kind of wages and how we think about wages in the parts of the economy that are essential to function but are undervalued, 
right? And this is where we kind of get into, you know, this larger conversation about the care sector and how we think about the care sector and everything else. So on, but let's deal with your kind of, your question is more focused on the kind of shorter term, shorter term question. I think that the market, um, I think it's a bit complicated. It's a bit more complicated than simply the market will rise to meet those particular um, wage demands. The function of that is because we are non-normal, non-normal settings, right? The labor market is effectively constrained by no migration and migration into these particular role in these particular, in, the migration was a strong, strong function of what actually sustained the labor market in those particular industries. And once you have migration that will, you know, I mean, once you have migration or at least a resumption of some form of migration that will ease some of the pressures there. But I think, I think the idea that, you know, the idea that somehow we need to be worried, you know, we need to be worried about inflation. That is, um, that is right. You know I mean, but the fun, but, but the, the challenge on inflation is a more fundamental question around the role that government policy is playing and the transition of government policy, both fiscal and monetary, than it is on whether or not people should get paid because they're in demand for the work that they do. I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, I think equating those two things simplifies what simplifies in a way that's almost, almost incorrect. When I was in the States, obviously a lot of people were talking in the front page of the all papers were talking about supply chain issues um, in, in, in the US um, and then the, 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 the impact that was having on the cost of goods. Um, and anecdotally, <laughs> I've written here, $144 for a bottle of Lagavulin and single malt is outrageous. Uh, and that's when I know that inflation is a problem. Um, why is why are the United States having supply chain issues? And will this become a problem here in Australia as well? Yeah, so... so um uh, we live in an integrated. We live in an integrated economy. There's a whole range of different pressures that um, uh, the whole range of different things that then make that integrated economy work. You know, it's not just being able to buy things. It's being able to move things around. It's being able to, you know, I mean, export things, import things. It's the nature of how we might think about. You know, I mean, the the various kind of challenges. You know, and so, you know, um, truck drive. You know, freight is a really important aspect of that, and freight. Um, and, and there's a particular challenge on freight. I think on the US supply chain kind of concerns, in general, more recently, there's been commentary that those things have dissipated. I mean, there's been more, um, there's been more recent commentary to suggest that those supply chain pressures that existed in the US economy have, have dampened. I think the Federal Reserve put something out a couple of weeks ago saying that they thought it had peaked and was now dissipating. I think Brian DC, who's the um, White House um, uh, chief uh, economic advisor, the head of the Council of Economic, um, uh, um, the, the head of the White House Economic Council of Advisors, whatever it's called, um, um, he basically made some statement to think, saying that he thought that it was, you know, it had reached its kind of peak and was going to going, going to ease off. A number of American retail banks have basically said said similar things. So I think the pressure in the U.S. economy is going to dissipate. I don't. I think the for all the ways in which I described the inflation challenge, those same things apply, or those same things drive this kind of question around the supply chain, right? We live in an integrated economy. There's ways in which we can kind of export some of those challenges through the currency and the tradable effect. Um, but I think by and large, um, depending on how we change our behaviors, it's not likely to kind of have that type of effect because it sort of seems to have passed. It does ask a question though of the, about the fundamental resilience of our economy and how we think about the fundamental resilience of our economy. And it, be, and it begs the question about the longer term view on industry policy, which, 
our view has always been that, you know, we need, we don't need to worry about that, you know, because we live in a globalized economy and there'll always be movement of goods and always be movement of things. But we have actually seen a withdrawal of that in time, right? Global trade as a percentage of GDP, sorry, global trade as a percentage of GDP peaked in 2008 has been and has been falling since, right? The number of like non-tariff barriers to trade around the world has basically increased as time has passed. You know? um, we do need to worry about like, we, you know, I mean, the role that the WTO plays as an institution that oversees these things is compromised, you know, was compromised during the Trump era. And, and so, so we do need to worry about global trade as a function of helping, helping deal with the supply chain concerns. But we also should think about as a tool of economic policy and as a tool of industry policy, what are we thinking about in terms of how we build those structures? What I think is particularly interesting is that you know, if we think about, um, you know, like like um, one one of the areas I think is really particularly fascinating is that Australia, like Australia, does not. Um, we, we we generally tend to do the primary aspects of, um, you know, goods and goods and services, or and and the tertiary effects, but we actually leave out the whole secondary secondary effects. And there's been good reasons why we've kind of shifted and changed things, but we should reconsider our position in that um, in that space. The rats debate is just the best example of that. The um, another question, sort of more related to, I guess, the labour market. But um, I found interesting reading a couple of pieces when I was over in the states about, about this rising phenomenon called the Great Resignation in the US. I wonder if you can unpack that for our listeners. What exactly they mean by the Great Resignation, um, and are we likely to see something like that happen here in Australia as well? Oh, okay. Um, I thought you were talking about Justin Langer when you started talking about the Great Resignation. <laughs> um, uh, look, I, uh, the Great Resignation refers to basically this phenomenon of a higher quit rate in the US um, as the US basically emerged from COVID pre, pre-Omicron. Right? And um, the, popular, the popular understanding of the Great Resignation, I mean, as is one of many, many other phenomena, is to basically describe it as high-paying, white-collar people that found their purpose, you know, and let's be honest, like finding your purpose is important, but actually the things that motivated the great resignation were actually a lot of things that working people had to deal with, right? I mean, inadequate childcare, I mean, um, health concerns. I know this because the Bureau of Labor Statistics actually surveys this, right? You know, um, um, there was also this kind of idea that people were quitting out of burnout because of how much work that had, had to do or sympathy with, you know, sympathy with, you know, like the actual percentage of people that showed sympathy with like the anti-worker movement was actually like non, you know, it was, it was more than what I expected, which was maybe a couple of percent versus like zero, mm. right? So I think, I mean, and, and there's also like the fact that people can now move into different forms of employment and self-employment, right? And those shifts are still substantial um, in the way in which we work. So I think that, um, I think that, um, uh, we, should, we need to think about the Great Resignation in a much broader context about how people think about work. And the places that saw, saw these people lo- losing their work in the US were in, were in hospitality, were in healthcare, were in retail, all the sectors that you talked about that had pressures in the way in which we think about high wages. Many of them were by, many of those things were a function of the fact that people were scared to go to work, right? And so we kind of need to think about this thing. The thing I worry about the most in the Great Resignation is the gender, uh, how it exacerbates the already existing gender bias that exists in the labor market. Because a lot of these, a lot of these things, a lot of the reasons why people left work were, you know, purpose was one thing and burnout was another thing, but it was actually to care for 
was to care for people or because they were scared about the effect that it would have on their families. And I think we just need to think about that a little bit more. What does it mean? What does it mean um, about, um, like, have we seen that in Australia? Um, not yet. And I don't expect, like, there's been a lot of commentary about it in Australia from both, you know, people on the left and the right of um, politics. And I think the general consensus tends to be that there's been a lot of movement across different types of work, but not really a great resignation in a sense. You know, there's a relatively high kind of vacancy rate. Um, uh, and that's true, but there's also a lot of, uh, there's also relatively high movement across different roles. So lots of, a lot, like, um, Australia has quit rates, but it also has reasonably high start rates. You know, and so, so that, therefore, I don't think we're seeing the kind of great resignation here. But I think the interesting part about the great resignation is actually what it means for like the totality of work and how we think about work as the tool for economic and social progress, right? And this is a philosophical problem, philosophical problem for philosophical problem and opportunity for labor parties, right? Not just in Australia, but all over the world, including in the US. And you know, I think the US example is that they haven't grappled with it particularly well, right? Because we have used work, we've used the concept of work and the way in which we've put all of the benefits of work, the benefits through the social protection frameworks, the benefits through, you know, the pension system, the benefits associated with um, a whole range of different aspects, which have then been laden on by things like the nature of access to finance and other things, right? We've, we've used work as this kind of core concept um, to drive effectively mobility, you know, in social mobility, for generations, right? And if that is fragmenting, or if that is changing, if the nature of how it's changing is shifting, I mean, like, what does that mean for us in terms of using that as a device to lift millions of people into more into into prosperity? And I think that bit is probably a difficult question that we should, you know, I mean, that we need to grapple with, but we're not going to do it in the remainder of this podcast. But I think that I think is the interesting part about the Great Resignation. It's not happening in any meaningful way in Australia. It may, it still may, it's a bit early to tell, right? But I think the larger question is, how, or what does it actually mean for the way in which we think about work? And I might just say well, a really quick thing here about um, remote work and kind of hybrid work and other things is that a lot of that debate has focused on the function of, well, do we work at home or do we work in the office? Not actually that the work is different. Right, you know, people are now not going to come into the office to do the same work that they could at home. They're going to come into the office for a different type of working experience, and people are going to, you know, I mean, so so it just the whole way in which we think about work has to change. Now that has a lot of challenges, and that's easy to think about the challenges, but it also creates a huge amount of opportunities for, you know, for the economy, but also for progressive political movements. Yeah, I guess in Australia, anecdotally anyway, from my own experience, talking to um, sort of friend, friends and family and, and colleagues and, and the like, is that it feels like it's the great reshuffle that's happening right now. A lot yeah. of people are yeah. reconsidering that's right. yeah. the work that they're doing right now and is that something that they want to continue doing. Um, returning and working from home is... Um, meant that they've got a different outlook on how they work. Some people have enjoyed that experience and want to do more of it and want to be in a work environment where they can do that. Some people have hated it. Um, and I think the experiences for, for, for workers probably vary as well based on gender and probably vary based on age um, and skill sets as well. Um, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, I'm happy for you to go to that sort of, because now I want to talk about the, repos the, the repositioning of the economy and move into that area. Yeah. What do you think is the long-term 
both benefits and challenges that the Australian economy is going to face in terms of those kinds of questions that you're asking? Yeah, so I think I think I think this question around, you know, the changing the changing nature of work or the way in which people are sort of responding to this kind of changing nature of work is um, um, it it, um, it sort of um, it, it it plays out um, it plays out in a bunch of different ways. You know, I mean, like I think the the sense that people need to find a sense of purpose in work has always been the case, but I think it's seen a new sort of emergence as we've kind of seen this kind of focus on ESG issues. I mean, like, I think um, there, you know, there, there wasn't that much of a focus on it um, probably pre-pandemic. And one of the good things about the pandemic is this focus on how we think about purpose in the way in which you do your work, uh, corporate purpose and those other things have kind of emerged as issues around um, around the, the role of the work that we do and the kind of nature of the way in which we do that work. But I also do think, I also do think that there is a kind of ima- reimagining of reimagining of the nature of what those particular important skill important um, aspects are one of the this is going to sound a bit strange but like one of the things I think is really interesting is um, we work was almost irrelevant before the pandemic mm-hmm. right and you would have if somebody told you that you were going to have a pandemic you know you were going to have a pandemic for like two years that would basically shift everyone away from the office you would have almost sworn that what that would mean is the demise of something like we work right but actually, it's now more relevant than it had been before, right? Um, and the reason it is is because people come in for the purpose of connection, right? Like you, you know, I talked about this idea about like earning the commute, right? Like people are now not coming to work for the pure purpose of seeing work as a, you know, I mean, as as something to gain basically income, right? They're seeing work for the totality of what people have been talking about work was about. It's about connection. It's about community. It's about this idea of, you know, I mean, like, like this, it's about social standing. It's about like a whole range of other things that we have been talking about work and has, has kind of frayed probably in the last three decades. And now we're refining that in our, um, in work. What we're also finding though, is also where that can be matched by the support of policy, right? And what we're seeing is that policy has not supported Policy is not supported for for various. You know, it's it's not a function. It's not a political comment. It's more um, like just the societal kind of um, structure kind of problem. But policy hasn't supported care work or teachers or other things for a significant period of time. Like we have, we, we've obviously provided some support um, in some. We've obviously provided some support in some. Um, um, some particular ways from particular governments, but in general, the kind of the general notion of those particular industries has been to un- has been society undervaluing them, right? And what we're now seeing is, you know, um, when healthcare workers or when education, you know, when teachers or when um, you know, when support workers basically say that they've kind of had enough, we can't really complain because we haven't given them the value that they that, that they probably deserved, right? You know what I mean? And I think that there's, there is actually an interesting kind of reimagining of the economy that needs to happen around those particular questions, right? Like we have benefited for three generations from the fact that we've been able to pay, you know, I mean, pay, pay these particular roles. You know, um, so, so uh, when I mean roles, well, pay, pay people in those professions that we talked about, you know, I mean, um, teaching, nursing, support work, basically a less than market wage because we've offered them a whole bunch of non-monetary benefits. We've offered them non-monetary benefits like reduced working hours, school holidays, you know, um, flexibility, a whole range of other things. And we've basically been able to take a feminized workforce and offer them these non-monetary benefits and basically say, 
that is the reason why that is our offer to you. That is our society's value to you is that, right? And what, what's turned out is actually we need them to do more than that, right? We need them to work, you know, those non-monetary benefits have over time dwindled, dwindled, dwindled to the point in which they just non-existent. In fact, there's now non-monetary costs for these people in that, in that type of work. And so it is a perfectly reasonable and rational thing for them to say, you know what? I don't want to do this no more. You know? And we can't turn around and say, oh, well, you know, we should have done, I mean, oh, we can't, well, you know, we're paying you a market wage and you're doing this. It's like, well, we've just undervalued what you do, right? And so I think that what this does actually gives you a chance to reimagine that particular thing, right? Like, you know, and if you're a new, you know, I mean, if you are somebody that would typically have gone into this type of work, why would you choose that versus going and being, you know, I mean, a lawyer or going and being a white collar worker or something else, right? You've got equally, equally the same amount of skills or, you know, why wouldn't you choose that, you know, choose that to, to go and be somebody that could do something, you know, like whatever, whatever your heart's desired, right? Like, so, we're now having to deal with the consequences of the fact that we haven't tried to deal with these structural imbalances, mainly based on gender, but also based on a whole range of other things. You know, we can get to the point where we talk about other things. Now, this might seem like a too difficult to grapple with issue, but I'll just give you a really simple case example, right? The French economy recovered much faster than the American economy, right? There's a range of different explanations for why they did that, but one really simple explanation for that was the women's participation rate in France went up much faster than the women's participation rate than in the US, right? And the reason it did is because France has universal access to early childhood education. Um, it has free access to primary school um, and it has a comprehensive system of after school care, you know, out of school care, right? The American system has none of those things, right? So actually, if we need these roles, if we need people to work in it, we need to think about this thing in that kind of structured way. We also need to rethink the way in which we think about the social safety net, right? Like, and the social safety net that we had, which is really, you know, I mean, important and a certain sufficient function, has only been successful because it's been added to over time, right? We didn't have pensions and you know, we didn't have superannuation in the social safety net in Australia until like 30 years ago. The NDIS is a relatively new addition to what we think of in the social safety net. There's a whole range of ways in which we shift that. And we haven't had huge innovations in the social safety net. The Victorian government is doing probably, I think, one of the most interesting and most innovative innovations in the social safety net, which is with this secure work scheme, where it's effectively you know, I mean, providing a kind of system in which it allows people when they're sick to stay at home and not lose income, right? Mm -hmm. We talk about sick leave and entitlement to sick leave, but actually, you know, I mean, providing that across multiple and non-standard types of work is a really important thing. You know, there's only two jurisdictions in the world that are doing it. It's um, Victoria's not on its own. British Columbia is doing the same thing as well. But I think this whole thing about innovating on the social safety net, that's how you address this kind of fundamental question around how people value work and think about work. It's actually a bunch of fascinating points you've just raised there, Amit, and I almost feel like we've just buried the lead because I think that that's the, one of the biggest takeaways I've had from this conversation so far. And my follow-up questions now I feel stupid asking because I wanted to ask you about where's, does the federal government have a clear plan into this third phase you talk about, which is repositioning the economy going forward? I feel like the answer is no, but I'm going to ask you that question anyway and get your thoughts on that. Where are we going from here? So it might have had a plan. You know what I mean, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. They might have had a plan, but they need a new one. Right. Um, they need a new one because um, because basically basically once these once these once these pressures pass, 
there's going to be a range of different issues that exist in the economy in the short term. We talked, what we just talked about were really long-term, long-term difficult issues, but actually if we don't solve them, we end up with the same problem that we've got later, but probably even worse. You know? But in the short term, really the kind of political priorities of either side, whether, you know, does this is going to, is, is really kind of very simple. It's sort of focused on four things, you know, fiscal restraint, right? We have seen, the highest, like, the public has been very tolerant of this high level of spending, but when inflation increases, right, more government, more government spending will basically mean that central banks will have to raise interest rates very, you know, much faster than they, than they can, right? And that is not something that the public is going to tolerate, right? And so, and so I think that there needs to be some kind of, you know, in some, we, we need to shift this conversation back into fiscal restraint. I know that sounds a bit crazy for a Labor person to talk about, but actually it is really important and it is something that um, um, we need to think about. It's something that Labor historically has done very well, is managing this, these particular transitions. Mm. And we should be proud of our legacy in, doing, in managing those transitions. Um, we need to be able to address particular skill shortages. You know, this is a big frustration for businesses and it is a big frustration for workers. And I think thinking about a way in which we can improve participation, improve skills development, improve worker matching is going to be really, really important. Um, I think we need to think carefully about cost of living pressures. Yeah, um, those cost of living pressures are a function of capacity constraints. Yeah, um, uh, how do we improve basically the infrastructure that's happening? And when you think about, there hasn't been a structured infrastructure spending program. Um, um, other than the one that's been done by state governments in Victoria in particular, but also increasingly in, in places like New South Wales. So how do we think about those particular things, but then also how do we um, offer relief or targeted relief for cost of living pressures through the tax system, through the family payment system, through changes to particular um, subsidies. You know, it's clear that the initiative of the um, you know, that Albo's initiative around childcare and the childcare subsidy is now particularly important in this, you know, I mean, um, in this respect. And then the last thing I think that, um, you know, if you know, the plan should include is basically this investment in the productive capacity, right? And those things are, those things are very simple. You know what I mean, um, how do you invest in economic infrastructure? How do you think about private sector? You know, I mean, how do you lift the level of private sector investment? So private sector, you know, business investment in the economy is lower than it has been at any point in the 20, in 20 years, right? Like how do we actually, you know, that, that, you know, the, you know, Morrison is, is very, you know, I mean, loves talking about the private sector recovery. Like, like, please, can we work out a way to get more investment in the economy? Like, that is the thing that we, uh, we need to get going. And other me measures that we need to do where we start worrying about productivity. Participation is an issue in particular sectors and particular, for particular roles, but in general, participation is okay. We now have to start thinking about productivity in a much more real way. For the past decade, the, the, the Tories have used the issue of economic debt as a device to really whip uh, various Labor uh, governments and oppositions and campaigns in general at election time uh, to hurt our economic credentials. Now, um, as you sort of said at the top of the program, there's been a lot of money spent by the current federal government um, to pump and protect the Australian economy. And I think they recorded a deficit of $160 billion or something at the moment, which is just insane to think about. Um, do you think that this, um, this issue of debt at election time, because we're about to come into a campaign again, is going to get trotted out again by the Tories? Or, or do you think that this issue is now dead in the water? Um, I... I don't know whether it gets, you know, I mean, trotted out 
by them as an issue, but it is definitely an issue we shouldn't be scared to talk about. I mean, like it is definitely something that is an actual issue in the economy because I think that the economic conditions we have today are very similar to the economic conditions they were in 2007, right? And um, I've bang, banged on about, you know, in, uh, like the, the reason why we need to think about the fact that the economy was, you know, in 2007, the economy was reasonably strong. Employment was reasonably high, you know, I mean, because of the mining boom, yeah? Um, uh, but there were pressures in the cost of living. There were pressures, there were rising prices in groceries and fuel. There were, you know, I mean, interest rates were rising. I mean, there were skill shortages. These are all conditions that exist today, right? And there will be rising prices into the, in 2022. I think one, is, one thing that is really interesting is that, um, uh, one thing that is really interesting is that a lot of US petrol stations have a picture of Joe Biden next to the rising petrol price saying, I did that, you know what I mean? Mm. Like, like it, you know, um, petrol, you know, like inflation may not reach the levels that it does in the US, but it is still going to be painful for household budgets. So, and the reason for that is because, the reason for that is because um, we have not managed this transition of this wall of money going into the economy that has lifted debt and we haven't thought about a way in which we phase into the next phase and how we withdraw that, right? And so we shouldn't be scared to talk about this issue because that issue, what has that issue bought us? It's bought us higher prices, higher interest rates, right? Um, higher cost of living and more pain for particularly households that are in the kind of, I mean, um, um, that, that are struggling, you know, but, but, but particularly the households that didn't have access to remote work or didn't get the chance to like save a ton because they weren't going away on leave. You know, the people that, that, that live on very reasonably tight budgets, that will hurt them in a way that is very, um, is very serious. You know, for the last two years, governments have basically pretended all around the world, governments have pretended that fiscal policy didn't matter. It helped in Australia because it was a conservative government and so they could kind of just get away with it, right? But um, there are consequences for debt and deficit, right? When interest rates are low, debt is very easy to service, right? And people don't, people aren't particularly sensitive to, to debt levels. That's why house prices have gone up as much as they have been, right? But when they start, but fiscal policy does matter and governments are about to remind, be reminded why. And that's why I think we shouldn't be scared to talk about it, but we need to talk about it in ways that matter to people. I mean, it matters because it affects your cost of living and not because of some weird calculation about dividing the total debt number by the population and how much, not, not that, like, I mean, in a real sense, right? I mean, in the sense of how much is it going to cost you in when you go to the when you go to the petrol bus, or how much is it going to cost you in terms of your mortgage payments? How much is it going to cost you in terms of just operating the usual way in which you think about, you know, I mean, your everyday life? Going into this election campaign, structurally, how should Labor be seeking to reposition the Australian economy over the next five to ten years? Um, I think the focus on the care economy, as you, as you can. I mean, guess from what I've said before, the focus on the care economy and the focus on early childhood education is exactly spot on. And I think that is a thing that we needed to do regardless. I mean, it will have the biggest effect in terms of productivity and education for the next generation of Australians. It will have the biggest effect on, it will have a huge effect on these cost of living pressures. So I think that is the right space to, to be in. I think we need to think about the care sector and all of the elements of the care sector as an economic opportunity, not a cost. I mean, I think the idea, I get incredibly frustrated by the idea that some, you know, people talk about the NDIs not being sustainable. It has always been sustainable. There's never, you know, I mean, like, like the NDIs has always been sustainable. The problem with the NDIs has been the administration of the NDIs by a bunch of 
Yeah, I mean, it has been the administration of the NDIS. I'll just leave it at that. You know I mean, um, uh, um, the um, you know, I think we need to do more on how we think about the structure of the aged care system and what does that actually mean for the opportunity that comes with that. Um, I think there's a whole range of different opportunities um, in what do we think uh, in the green economy. You know, Australia, there, there was a fascinating report done on battery manufacturing in Australia. Australia does every aspect of the battery production phase, but doesn't actually make the batteries in Australia. You know what I mean, and there's so much we can do to do that. The leading company in the world on the leading company in the world on base materials for renewables is the one that's based in Collins Street in Melbourne, right? It is, it is the big Australian, like the big Australian does, BHP does more on low emissions, low emissions like resource development than anyone else, right? But how do we turn that into a domestic industry that actually makes and produces these things to turn them into higher value, higher value products? Um, um, and I think, uh, so, so I think, I think, I think in the co combination of industry policy and looking at the big shifts in decarbonisation is another aspect that I think we need to be thinking very carefully about. And I mentioned before, um, is also changing the nature of how we work and what that actually means. So I think there's, you know, the list is long. Yeah, I don't think they're going to run out of things to do. Um, just slightly changing topic. While I've got you, since you are a fellow member of uh, Patriots Nation of support of the New England Patriots, um, the Super Bowl is coming up next week. Uh, a couple of quick questions. First of all, how did you rate the Pat season just gone with our new quarterback, uh, Mac Jones? Um, uh, I thought um, I'm excited about the next season. I think that um, I think that uh, he had his first season, and I think we shouldn't. Um, uh, he, he had his first season, which was probably. I, I, um, uh, I think he did reasonably well for his first season and much higher than expectations. I think the end probably gave an impression that he, you know, that it didn't work out as well as some people may have thought. But I think it was his first season, the season which he was meant to spend most of it sitting on the bench, shadowing another quarterback. Mm. But he did reasonably well. Um, I think that there's a lot of there's a few changes that the Patriots need to make, um, and they're going to, they're going to make anyway. You know what I mean, and I think, um, but I but I but I'm excited about the next few seasons to come. I got a, a question that no one seems to be able to answer. Leading up to the buy round, the Patriots were on fire. Yep. Then after the buy round, it kind of all went to shit. What what happened in that week? I wonder. Matt Judon stopped being able to play. Mm. Matt Judon was the leading sack um, maker in the NFL before that bye weekend. And they came out and had zero sacks for the remainder of the year. So I think I think I think actually the Patriots' weakness following that bye weekend was its defense, rather than um, anything else that you know Mac Jones, um, anything else that could that could have been done on the kind of I mean offensive side of the ball. So I, I actually think that that to me was the big difference. Now, I don't know what happened to the defense, but I think that was the bit that um, do you think seemed offense, to fall apart. Do you think offensive coordinators worked him out basically to nullify his impact in I th pressure I, I, the quarter? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th I think that, that that's probably what happened. But I think, but I think there was also, this is this is kind of the challenge that they have in terms of, you know, the Patriots have a long history of not having like a designated defensive coordinator. You know what I mean, and um, and so, you know, did did that have an effect? Probably not, because why would you ever question Belichick? But um, it did feel like that bit fell away after the bye week. Tom Brady, uh, finally. Uh 
pulled the pin on a, a long and illustrious career. And I say pulled the pin, but he technically didn't say he was retiring in his statement. And there's a there's a bit of stuff on Twitter at the moment going, well, is he going to come back? Is he going to confound everyone? I want to get your thoughts on that as well. But, um, but also uh, just to say... Uh, it's surely the debate is over as to who is the greatest, not just the greatest quarterback in the history of the NFL, but who is the greatest NFL player is is over, right? It was over five years ago. I don't even know why we're having this debate. Like, it ended in that night in Houston. It was over. Like, it was over. Yeah, I, I don't even know why we're even, like, you know, it's almost like, uh, I, think it's fu- I think it's a good debate to have who's the greatest NFL player in the history of the sport. Like people should continue to do that, but they're talking about the second best player. Yeah. I was in a bar on uh, the Sunday night in uh, your former hometown of San Francisco, um, watching the, uh, that, 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 that weekend round of divisional games, which were just amazing. Like arguably the greatest weekend in the greatest weekend. Yeah. Postseason NFL history. But I was having an argument with a guy who I just I didn't even know some random bloke sitting next to me about Aaron Rodgers and the Kansas City Chiefs and they're going to have a dynasty, which you know, in the end was sort of nullified the next week. People still want to have these debates about whether or not uh, Brady was the greatest quarterback, and I'm just going, this is just ridiculous. How many Super Bowls did he need to win to prove to you guys that he clearly is up there, not just the greatest quarterback, not just the greatest NFL player, but in the pantheon of greatest U.S. sportsmen, yeah, of all time, I'm up there with Jordan and yeah. Gretzky, and you know, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't understand the debate, um, but I also think, I also think, part of it is just a function of the fact that dynasties are really difficult to do, and dynasties are really difficult to do in the NFL, and you know, and. I think I think part of the thing that people miss about Tom Brady is that, um, and I think it's because of the glamour of Tom Brady, is that fundamentally Tom Brady was a footballing person, right? When he chose, and I think one of the things that made me, like, respect him in a way in which I, I already, oh, like, you know, it's it's not it's not actually it's it's so far like you you cannot say a bad word about Tom Brady to me, right? You know what I mean? But one of the things that I think was really interesting was when he left the New England Patriots, he chose Tampa Bay. Of all the teams he could have possibly gone to, he could have gone to any team in the NFL and they would have had him with open arms, but he could have particularly gone to New York, San Francisco, or Los Angeles. And he chose to go to Tampa Bay, right? Because it was a footballing decision, right? And what that showed was that Tom Brady was, all Tom Brady cared about was footballing decisions, right? And that's the bit that I think a lot of people under-index about his, his things. Like maybe he's not the fastest guy. Maybe he's not the most athletic guy. Maybe he's not this thing. But actually, you know what I mean? The guy thinks about football in a way in which a lot of these other people don't, and he trades off things for footballing decisions in a way that's that people miss out on. And he could have chosen any of these other glamorous teams. He chose the team that he thought was going to play the best football and put him in the best position to win the game. And he also trades off on his own income as well. I mean, numerous exactly. contracts through his time at New England in which he enabled the Patriots to go under the salary cap so they could acquire the pieces that they needed to put together a championship-winning team. There are so many – like, it's going to be interesting to see what uh, uh, Pat Mahomes does when it's his turn for payday, whether exactly. he takes the hometown cut in order to build a team or a roster to win another Super Bowl, and I bet you he doesn't. Um, uh, my favorite story, my favorite, like, I'll finish this, my favorite recent story of Tom Brady, because there's so many, so many great stories about Tom Brady, but my favorite recent story was 
when he went to Tampa Bay, they didn't have a great running back. And um, and he knew that Lenny Fournette had basically given away the game. And he went over to his we went over to his mum's house, basically knocked on the door and said, "Would you come to play?" And Fournette basically dithered about it. And then I think um, Leonard Fournette's mother basically turned around and said, "If Tom Brady knocks on your door and asks you to play football, go and play football." Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Anyway, last question: Who you got for the Super Bowl next uh, next uh, Sunday night, Monday morning Australian time? Um. Uh, look, I love Aaron Donald. I think Aaron Donald deserves a ring because I think Aaron Donald deserves in um, uh, deserves a place in the Hall of Fame. I think he's the best player in the league. But I kind of love the Joe Burrow train. Yeah. And um, and there's actually a lot of Joe Burrow. I said to a friend the other day, which is hack- sacrilegious, I know this, and so I apologize in advance to you in particular, Stephen, but... Um, uh, there's a lot of Aaron, there's a lot of Joe Burrow that reminds me of TB12. There's a lot of like uh, you know finding a way to win a game when you're not really supposed to. Yeah. Ne- never thinking that you're actually out of it, and this kind of weird love that his teammates have for him, right? Which is not really can't easily be explained. There's a lot of that that I kind of like. I mean, so yeah, I'm kind of I'm I'm uh, I'm pretty, and I also like the idea that. You know, two guys who played in college together, who grew up, you know, reasonably close from each other, who then went and were played for the same NFL team, right? And who, uh, you know, I mean, are, are possibly going to go and disrupt everybody's kind of season. There's an infection uh, about uh, the Bengals that I just can't get around, that I can get around so much. I just, uh, watching them through the playoffs has been a lot of fun and I just wanted to see them go away on uh, on the on yeah, Super, yeah. Super Bowl I, I also feel like, I also feel like the Bengals, like the Bengals won't get another go at this, right? Like no. this, this is their go, right? Yeah. So they should, um, yeah. But like, but if the Rams win, I'll be very happy for Aaron Donald, if not unhappy about anybody else. And there's also a hilarious story about how I once managed to get, back into a bar that I'd been kicked out of in New York because of OBJ. So I'm not going <laughs> to complain about that. So. Very good. Amit Singh, uh, once again, thank you so much for taking your time to come on the show. Um, it's always an insight uh, into economics uh, that um, you, you bring that I, that I certainly don't have. And I know a lot of our listeners will certainly get a lot out of it. Um, and we really do appreciate you coming on today uh, just to talk us through it. And I think this is, look, you know, the next um, four or five uh, actually, I'm trying to work out how many, how many weeks until election, like a couple of months anyway, it will be fascinating to watch the debates between Labor and the Conservatives over how they're going to manage the economy going forward because obviously that's, you know, the, the economic conversation is where you win elections. And I really hope that Elbow and his team have got the answers for the Australian public because, it, yeah, the um, this recovery is, you know, going to be so, so critically important for Australian working families and uh, I really do appreciate your, uh, your insights in today's conversation. Yeah, I think the point that you make about, like, if we get the recovery wrong, the pain that it may cause to working families is significant. So we should we should be worried about it a lot. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Hey there. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday.